0: mean, from verse 16 to the end of the chapter, these other words of God. A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is saying. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. "'Therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, "'and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. "'And in that day you will ask me nothing. "'Most assuredly I say to you, "'Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. "'Until now you have asked nothing in my name. "'Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. "'These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, "'but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you "'in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father.' In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world, and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly, and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things, and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. These are the words of God. Let's ask his blessing. Father, thank you for your word, and for the work of your Son recorded here in this word. We thank you for your mercy and grace and ask that your grace have its way with us in the preaching and receiving of your word. Do so in our minds, our souls, and hearts. Do so by means of your Holy Spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Well, we come to the final section of Jesus' farewell speech, something that which really began in chapter 13. I need to turn it on. OK, I don't usually. OK, great. Thank you. <laughs> um, once again, we've come to the end of, of the uh, section of John's, or of, of John's recording of Jesus' farewell discourse. Um, chapter 17 will be his prayer. And in this is his closing encouragement to his disciples over their sorrow, over his coming departure. Throughout the chapters, over and over again, he's been talking about that he's going to be leaving. And this has caused them quite some concern and and discouragement. And he's beginning to, uh, he's he's closing this with some final words to encourage them. You recall back in in chapter 13, it, it began with Jesus saying that he was troubled in spirit as he was he knew what this night was going to bring and what the what the next day would bring and so he was troubled in spirit. And then as he began the discourse formally in the beginning of chapter 14, he tells them um, to not be troubled. And so this, this whole, these whole three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, has really been a sermon where he's been telling them, don't be troubled. And it ends here, again, um, in, in the very end, with these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So their sorrow will be turned into joy, he says. Their their confusions will be turned to understanding, and their tribulations will not thwart the saving work Jesus came to accomplish in the world. Now I want to start at the end. I want to start down at the end for just a moment um, in in this, this phrase, be of good cheer, be of good cheer. It's translated in, in various ways in, the, in different translations. Um, and, and, uh, and, and the reason I think it's so important is because this verb, tharseo, is not about... Um, be of good cheer can sound to us like, uh, you know, cheers. Ha- be happy. Don't worry. Be happy. There's a song like that, right? And, and, it's, and it's light, and, it's, and, and there's that sense. That's not what the word means. That's not the be of good cheer that, that uh, Jesus has in mind. Really, it's having a strong... Optimistic, courageous stand in the face of your circumstances. That—that's what the word is. The, the word is a is a driving encouragement and exhortation to keep going, to 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 uh, to to be of good courage, um, to to take the dare, to to uh, take heart. Um, so, for instance, um, the ESV translates uh, Matthew 9:2 this way: It says, "Take heart." That's the word. "Tharseo." Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven, as he speaks to the paralytic. Take heart. Stand up. Your sins are forgiven. And as he does with the woman with the discharge of blood who touches his garment and when he finds this woman she comes to him he says to her daughter take courage. Remember she's afraid as she comes to him. And 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 uh, the NASB translate that take take courage. Take courage. Your faith has made you well. When the disciples were afraid seeing Jesus walking on the water he says the same thing to them. Be of good cheer. Take courage. Do not fear and God said the same thing to Paul as he sat in prison in Acts chapter 23 verse 11. So it is not a cheer of simple happiness, but rather a cheering on, even a daring you to press on to the end. And I want you to keep this mind, keep this in mind as we as we walk through this the end of this discourse. Take heart. It's a, as, as as though you were a it was um it was halftime and, and things weren't going well in the game that you were playing and the coach says to you, be of good cheer or take heart or be of, be of good courage. I dare you. I dare you to keep going because I've got this plan. I've got this star player I haven't put on the field yet. And, and it's, it's all going well. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a charge to, to, to walk away from the discouragement that, that the disciples are feeling that way. That's, that's what this word means. And he's responding to uh, this, this back and forth that takes place with regard to him saying, a little while and you'll not see me a little while you'll not see me. This is this part, the verses 16 through 22. These phrases throughout these chapters are why it is referred to as the farewell discourse. It's just a little while and he's going to be gone. It's easier for us, as I've said before, on this side of the resurrection and ascension to see what Jesus meant, that you will see me because I go to the Father. But for them in that day, that's How are are we going to see you because you go to the Father? How is this all going to work? Um, It was anything but clear to them at all. Again, 17 and 18, they're talking to themselves, almost embarrassed, I guess, to to bring it to Jesus straight up. What, What, a little while and you'll not see me. What is this that he says to us? What's going on? What does he mean? Why is he saying these things? And particularly, they did not know that a little while really meant just a few short hours. It was just a few short hours until this was all going to begin to take place. Again, we see the great antithesis, though, between the world and the disciples of Jesus in verse 20. And, and so we can read ourselves into this as well. In verse 20, Jesus answers them this concern that they have. And he begins by saying, most assuredly, or amen, amen, I, I'm, I'm making a vow here. Amen, amen, I say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. See that? I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. There's the, we react exactly the opposite of the world with regard to the words and actions of Jesus. We are of the seed of the, of the woman, not the seed of the serpent. And this antithesis always, when Jesus is proclaimed, when Jesus' works come forth, when his name is brought forth, there is rejoicing and there is um, anger. And, and when Jesus is put down, like, like in the crucifixion, the world rejoices. The leaders rejoice. They thought they had thwarted um, Christ's work, Christ's reputation, Christ's um, supposed exaltation. The world's joy over the crucifixion of Jesus, and for us as well, his, his removal from the marketplace of ideas in our day or any claim to lordship in the public square, let alone over heaven and earth, was manifest at his crucifixion and continues wherever unbelief rules. Wherever unbelief rules, there is great rejoicing when... The the symbols of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the ideas of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus is put down, shut out, taken away from the the public square. And any declaration of his lordship, when that is put down and put out, there's great rejoicing in the world. We can be our own uh, kings. We can have our own destiny. We are the masters of our own future. The disciples, on the other hand, will weep and lament. But at his resurrection, they were overjoyed. Um, So he goes on in verse 20. He says, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. The the thing that you are sorrowful over will be turned into joy. And there's really kind of two meanings to this as well. Um, The the sorrow over his his death and and that him, him being gone will be turned into joy with his resurrection. But also the sorrow over the fact of his crucifixion will be turned into joy over the fact of his crucifixion because his crucifixion is the forgiveness of sins for us. The work on the cross is not something today that we are sorrowful at all. Imagine the sorrow that you would have felt if you were with a disciple that day. But today his crucifixion is cause for great joy for those who understand what that accomplished for us. So, um, and at his ascension and then the outpouring of the Spirit, we are told that these disciples also were overjoyed, speaking the great and mighty works of God in Acts chapter 2, and even under persecution in Acts chapter 5, um, there there was great rejoicing um, that they were able to suffer for the name of Christ. Um, and Paul, when he was in prison in, in Philippians, would say um, that there are some who seem to be preaching out of envy or trying trying to get uh, folks to, tur- to turn to them, to turn to their church or whatever. And, and Paul says, I don't care. As long as the gospel is preached, I rejoice. Rejoice at the preaching of the gospel going out. I rejoice at seed being scattered. I rejoice at hearing of others coming to Christ. This is the work of Jesus changing the world all around us. And so sorrow is turned to joy for the disciples. And Jesus, to give an example, likens the sorrow to woman in sorrow because her time of labor has come. And then that sorrow vanquished, forgotten and replaced with rejoicing when the child is born. That's in verse 21. Jesus promised those disciples they would soon have that kind of joy. And he says, look at the end of verse 22, and it will not be taken from you. It will, that joy will never depart from you. Certainly, we see this in the work of the apostles uh, over their lifetime, giving their lives to martyrdom for the sake of the gospel. The joy and the power of, their, of that joy, exalting what Jesus had done, carried them through all kinds of sorrows, all kinds of difficulties and persecutions. And, and so it applies first to their situation, but it is the same for all followers of Christ Amid the unfinished business of our own sanctification and the curse upon the world in which we live, there can and always is much suffering and sorrow. But we are reminded, we are reminded in the story that is given to us in John's other book, the book of Revelation, in his other epistle to, um, to, to the churches, to the seven churches, we are reminded of where that sorrow is going to finally uh, find its completion. Revelation 21, 4, where it says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And I know that for some, we read, the, we, read those, uh, we read those words and we think, why not now? Why, 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 would that, why can I not experience those now? And we have to remember that God promises that through the sorrows, through the pain, through the tears now, he is accomplishing a greater glory for us. But, but, that still, but still, know this, the day will come where it will be over. Well, the sorrow will be turned into complete joy and it will be like that experience that a mother has where there is such pain and anguish in in the moment of travail of giving birth to that child. But the moment that child is there, it's like it it was all worth it. It was all worth it. It It's all wonderful. There is this little life before us now. So such promises of future joy that will wipe away all sorrow then grants us courage today in the midst of the sorrows of life. We're being cheered on to faithfulness and hope by the author of Faithfulness and Hope. We're being cheered on. So you see, it's not just be of good cheer. It's hang in there. It's take courage. It's move on with me. I dare you to trust me. I dare you to trust me in the midst of this. In the midst of the sorrow, in the pain and the difficulty that I have brought upon you, that I have allowed to come upon you. I dare you. Take courage. I have overcome the world, Jesus says. He says to the disciples, and it echoes to all disciples in every age. Take heart, for your sorrow will turn to joy. Take heart, be of good cheer, and dare to ask as well. Dare to come to me with all of your questions, all of your concerns, all of your needs to know And this is verses 23 through 28 as well. In that day you will ask me nothing, most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. You will have direct access to the Father in ways you never had before. Your relationship and abiding in the Father, in me, in the Spirit, will be something you can't imagine, he says to the disciples then, and and then after his resurrection, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they experience, as we are promised that we do as well, but here again, there are some of these tricky verses on prayer that have, that have gone on throughout this, this discourse. And, and as we look at these verses, recall that this asking is to be done as we abide in him, as he abides in the Father. Remember 15, 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask, uh, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So the asking and the things that we need before the Father and in the name of Jesus take place as we abide in Him, as we abide in His will, as we seek for the glorification of His name, as we want the fruit of the Spirit to be brought forth in our life. Recall also as well... That the helper will come and he will lead us into all truth. So your questions will be answered. Again, this was specifically for the disciples, for the apostles. That they would be given all of the words that needed to be put down to to create the canon of scripture. That all of those questions that you had, they're they're asking here, what does he mean a little while? And and what does he mean he's going away and going to the father? Well, we know what it means. And the reason we know what it means is because the spirit came and told them explained it to them in great, in great detail. So when Jesus, um, when Jesus had departed, they will not be able to ask him to explain himself any longer because he won't be there. But through the gift of the Spirit, the teaching of Christ's atoning death and resurrection and ascension, the teaching of the gift of salvation to Jew and Gentile alike, the teaching of Christ's authority over all the nations would become clear. Would become clear to them. So take heart, he says, take heart and even dare to ask. If you, there, your questions will be answered. Your confusion will be made straight and plain. We have an account of this even after his resurrection, and during the forty days prior to his ascension, Jesus began this good work. Luke 24 records that, that he came before them and he showed them from the, from the Old Testament, from the law, it says, and the and the Psalms and, and the prophets, how all of the all of Scripture spoke about him and how it was all fulfilled. Filled in Him, Jesus laid it out for them, and in those forty days He instructed them um, with regard to how the Word, the Old Testament, all referred to Him. You see this all through the epistles um, uh, and, and and the writings of the of the apostles, over and over again, quoting the Old Testament. It's, it's so strange. I don't know if any of you um, have been through the third in the the third series or the third. Um, part of the series in, in the holiness of God in your Trinity group, but uh, Doctor Sproul talks about Marcion, who puts together the first um, the first canon of Scripture, and it's it's terrible. There's the, he has no Old Testament in it, and he cuts out all of the miracles, and 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 uh, the, he just has a few uh, pieces of epistles from Paul, basically, and that makes up his his Bible, um, which which wouldn't work very well if you really think about it. It's hard to read any of Paul, and and just. Old Testament just keeps coming out over and over and over again. How this verse and that verse and this prophet and that prophet all spoke about Christ. Um, the, The Old and the New Testament are bound together. Bound together in promise and promise fulfilled. And and that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did when he came. That's what he's given to us by his Holy Spirit, um, the word of God that teaches and shows us how God has always been in control, how he had this perfect plan and how that plan is being unveiled and brought forth and rolled out even in our generation, even in our day as well. And so, after Pentecost, the book of Acts reveals the reasoned doctrinal explanations that fill the minds and mouths of the apostles. These, these same guys who are saying, what in the world is he talking about? In, in just a few days are going to be standing, and then for the years ahead, standing in, in front of all kinds of crowds explaining who Jesus was and what he did. This is what Jesus is promising is going to happen here in this passage. Be of good cheer. Dare to ask your questions. I've got answers. They're coming. Wait. Wait for the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, when the Helper comes, he's going to make all things clear. Now, And, and I want to make clear to us as well that when we have questions, when we, are, we ought to be seeking answers by means of the Holy Spirit. And when I say by means of the Holy Spirit, I'm talking about this book, this book that the Holy Spirit gave us, gave through the apostles to us, that has the answers, that has the, the, the that can take care of our confusion, and and when you go there and you find that it, it didn't seem to answer your question, you 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 still aren't understanding, then you need to trust the word you need to trust the words of Jesus and continue your study. Continue your meditation. Continue flipping back and forth between the Old and the New Testament and seeing how these things fit together and see how your life fits in to that grand story as well. There are answers here. And and it is by the Holy Spirit that we come to a greater understanding of who Jesus is and what's going on in our lives and what we should do to obey him. But that Holy Spirit has given you a book. Use it. Read it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. That's the work of God's Spirit then in you as you do that. The Bible in your hand is the answer to that promise. Paul wrote that through the Son, we have access in one Spirit to the Father, as in Ephesians 2, verse 18. And so we understand about prayer. We understand prayer, like salvation, is through the Son, by the Spirit, and to the Father. Verse 23, And that day you will ask me nothing, most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give you. And and so we, we come to the Father. We come to the Father by means of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus. This is the protocol of prayer. But as we make our requests known, abiding in Him, the work of prayer will make our joy complete and our lives full of peace that passes understanding. The joy and the peace that is given to us by, in answer to prayer, in answer to the work of prayer, is not, is not joy and peace, first of all, because he answered your prayer exactly the way you wanted it, when you wanted it. Okay? If God answered your prayer exactly the way you wanted it, when you wanted it, you would miss the blessings that he has as he withholds the answers to, until his appropriate time and purpose. Okay? Uh, there, are, there are things that I remember that I prayed for that I am so glad God never answered. I'm so glad God never answered. So what's he talking about then, about the joy and the peace? Well, listen to Paul in, in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing. So what are you anxious about? Well, well, Paul just told you, and that means God has just commanded you to not be anxious. So, so being anxious is a sin. Be anxious. For nothing. Be anxious. So we all stop for a moment and confess sin again. <laughs> right. Be anxious for nothing. Instead, he says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Now, I've, I've, I've studied this and studied this and studied this, and I, I don't know exactly what the difference or the distinguishing, distinguishing uh, definitions of prayer and supplication are. But maybe he says prayer and supplication because you've got to do it a lot. You gotta pray and then you gotta supplicate. Then you gotta pray some more and supplicate some more. You gotta keep on pray and keep on praying. Ask and keep on asking, Jesus said. Seek and keep on seeking, Paul continues. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, any and all of them. Because when he says, when you do that, when you when you confess the anxiety, and when you take the when you take all of your requests. In the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, to the Father, to the very throne of grace, he says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He says, that's what I promise you. That will come. The the, the direct answer to your prayer may or may not come in the way that you want and when you want. And and, and many times it does, because God is kind, but always, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, having, having walked away from your anxiety, he promises that the peace of God, and, the, and how much of the peace of God? What kind of peace? Peace that passes understanding. Peace that makes no sense in the circumstance. That peace will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Dare to ask. Take heart and dare to ask him for anything. As we abide in the love of our risen Savior who is with the Father, as we abide in the love of our risen Savior who is with the Father today, our prayers, even amid sorrow, will lead to fullness of joy. Psalm 30. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That is for you. Psalm 126 that we just sang. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing. You're going along and it's not going well and it continues to not go well. And the tears are falling on your field like seed. That's what God says. Your tears of sorrow are falling on the field like seed bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. What sheaves? The sheaves that have come forth from the tears. That's what God promises his people. That's what God promises you. And that's what Jesus is giving his disciples to believe as he prepares to depart. Jesus reminds them, I came from the Father and have come into the world, in verse 28, referring to his humanity. I I was with the Father, but I came from the Father and I have come here to earth. We have a high priest, therefore, who has passed through the heavens and understands our weaknesses and needs for mercy and grace. Because Jesus knows what it is to be human. Jesus, the infinite God, Knows what it is to be finite. I don't know. I don't know how, but he does. He knows what it is to not have physical needs met. He knows what it is to go through pain and suffering. He knows what it is to be insulted and mocked. He knows what it is to to not have a place to lay his head. He he knows what it is like to watch um, to to watch friends die. He, he knows what it's like to. Um, to to have to bear with the things of this world. Jesus knows. In Hebrews 4, listen, "...seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace." that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Take courage. Come to the Father. Come to the throne of grace. You think he doesn't understand? No, he's walked this earth. He understands. He understands and sympathizes, and he sits at the throne of grace and mercy to help you, to help us in our time of need. So we're being cheered on. We're being cheered on to come before our Lord and ask the Father anything, anything in the name of Jesus. Puritan uh, commentator writes, we are so unwilling upon the one hand to pray and Christ so willing to be employed that he can never enough press us to that duty. Why is your prayer life so stagnant? Why are you so bad at praying? Is it possibly because you don't believe that God will grant you joy and peace beyond understanding? Is it because instead you'd rather hang on to your anxieties and try to control the life on your own? Is it because you don't believe that he hears you, that he is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him with faith, We're so unwilling upon the one hand to pray and Christ so willing to be employed that he can never enough press us to that duty. I am being pressed. You should be pressed to the duty of prayer because there you will find mercy and grace in your times of need. So take heart and dare to ask. Go before God. That's what Jesus is saying as he's preparing to leave. And then finally take courage in his victory. 29 through 33. Indeed, the hour is coming, verse 32. It has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. Yet not, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Well, something clicked, though, in verse 29. Disciples say, see, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Something happened. They have a sense of, oh, we get it. The disciples finally felt that they understood what Jesus was saying. His statement concerning his true nature and his heavenly origin and his heavenly destiny in verse 28 was profound but simple and clear, it seemed. But they and we must never take lightly the challenge of believing in and following Jesus. Jesus would warn them, oh, you believe. He he didn't doubt that they believed. He doubt that they believed all the way to the obedience that would come. Uh, that they were going to be with him all the way to the end. Our confidence must never be in ourselves, what we think we could do, but in him and what he has done. J.C. Ryle writes, like young recruits, they had yet to learn that it's one thing to know the soldiers drill and wear the uniform, and quite another thing to be steadfast in the days of battle. Where would you have gone that day that he was arrested? I I, I dare say we would have been like the disciples, right? Right? In a few short hours, they would fulfill Zechariah 13, 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But Jesus never needed disciples. As the disciples, unlike other, another leader, any other human leader, you, you, lose all the, you lose all the men with you in battle and you're thinking, I'm done for. Jesus loses all of the men in a battle that he knows he is with the Father. He doesn't need anyone else. He doesn't need anyone else. He's with the Father. Being with the Father grants you this kind of confidence. Jesus never needed disciples. His confidence was never in them. We've seen this over and over again throughout the Gospel of John. But his confidence was in the abiding unity that he had with the Father. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. And then he ends this final charge showing us where our confidence is to be and where our courage will come from. It will not be in our own works. And praise God for that. Your confidence where you're being encouraged is not in your own works, not in your own get up and do it. You can do it. You can find it within yourselves. Um, here, here's the deal. You cannot find it within yourself. You cannot find it within yourself to faithfully follow the Lord Jesus. You will stumble. You will be scattered when the shepherd is struck. You, you, will, not, you will not follow him to the end, left to yourself. But take heart, he says. Take courage. Not in your victory. Take courage. In my victory. Take courage for I have overcome the world. Victory is not up to us. It doesn't say we have overcome the world. It doesn't say, you guys, we've all been together. And we are about to bring the salvation of the world. That's so us. It's us against them. Hey, where are y'all? Right? No, it was Jesus. Jesus alone who conquered sin and death. And his victory is ours. His victory is our encouragement. His victory is our peace. His victory is our joy. The peace that Christ promises is is both objective and and subjective. So whether you feel it or not, we are told in Romans chapter 5, that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, God is your friend now. You are reconciled to God the Father. He is your Father. You are his child. And you are brought into the abiding love of the Father and the Son. And that is, has that is taken place because of nothing that you've done, but because of the finished, justifying work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have ears to hear and have not done that, have not put your faith in the faithfulness of God, I'm going to tell you, stop putting your faith in yourself. Don't put your faith in your faith. Put your faith in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Our trust Is in his faithfulness, not ours. They all scattered. And we scatter all the time. But our justification is rooted, our friendship with God, our reconciliation with God, our sonship in heaven is is reckoned by the work of Christ and the work of Christ only. He won. Again, Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So it's objective. And yet it's also something he promises to work in us relationally in the person of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 16 and 17. 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. In the preaching of his word, this is why sermons are good. In the preaching of his word, God does intend to enlarge your heart. God does intend to encourage you. God does intend to speak by his spirit through the word of God, through the preached word... He intends to take your heart now and say, yes, this is for you. Right now, this is for you. I want you to know that I am your father, the father says. I want you to know that you've been brought into a perfect relationship with me because my son has done a perfect work for you and brought you there. And not only that, but you are heirs of the glory that is to come. So your sufferings are going to be worth it. So this life is going to be worth it. And, and you hear this, you hear this in the preaching of the word, you hear this and it touches, it, it, it doesn't bounce off your forehead and just be words, it touches your heart, it goes into your soul, it bears great fruit, fruit of obedience, fruit of, of long-suffering, fruit of love for God and love for his people, like you would not be able to come, come, gather together, get together yourself, but God's placing it in you by means of his Holy Spirit, speaking to you through the word of God. So it's objective and it's subjective, and it's a glorious, glorious gift. So take courage. Take courage in his, in his victory. One pastor uh, Troy Martins, a pastor down in Santa Cruz, and he uh, preached through this passage and he called it cheerful daring. Cheerful daring. And I have three, three points come out of that to think about how, how you, are be, you are being dared with great cheerfulness, with, great, with, with, with the cheerleader himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, Look, you can do this. What I have given you to do, you can do, because I've overcome the world. So, first, you're to hear the words of your Savior cheering you on. You have fallen in sin, denying his lordship in some way. It's so so interesting. This is, when he says, I have overcome the world, be of good cheer, he's really, in one sense, he's responding to the whole sermon. It's the conclusion of his whole sermon. On the other hand, it's also a, a reaction immediately to his knowledge to them of saying, "Oh, oh, you think you believe? Actually, in this very hour, you're going to be scattered. You're not going to follow with me. But, but, be of good cheer." You're like, "Oh, great." <laughs> well, here it is. You're. It's it's like it's like God would say this to you. Um, he says to you, "I know you're going to sin this week. I know you're going to betray me in some way, small ways. I know you are. But be of good cheer." I've overcome the world. I've overcome your sin. I've overcome your shortcomings. I've overcome your compromises. Take heart. Take heart. He dares you to get up, to get up, remembering that it is He and not you that has overcome your sin. He did so on the cross. Your sins do not hound you like they did before. You, You confess your sins and He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. He forgives those sins and cleanses you again and again and again. So so your sin cannot hound you anymore. You do not have to walk around in any guilt and shame. If you've laid those sins before him, if you've agreed with him that they were betrayals against him, then he says, now get up, you're washed, you're clean, you're with me. The reconciliation with God the Father still exists. And you have this sense of taking courage and moving on. You are in a different place than you were before you were in Christ. In in your sins before, you would sin, and the guilt and the shame would pile up. It would deepen. It would darken. Now, now it it washes off you. you. You get another spiritual bath, and you're made fresh and new. He dares you. He dares you to trust Him that He has made all things right in terms of your relationship with the Father as you confess those sins and get up and serve Him. Second, you find yourself in a season of suffering with no reason that you can find for it. I have no idea why God has brought this. He dares you to embrace the sufferings just as He did, embraced His sufferings as the perfect work of the Father. That suffering, He embraced it as the perfect work of the Father, and He wants you to join with Him in embracing your suffering as the perfect work of the Father, both to drive you to prayer because He wants you to come and talk to Him, and faith in the faithfulness of God, and to live as though He has victory in and through it, even when we don't, even when we don't. And of course, we have Paul's great example, Second Corinthians 12, let me read it. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong." And finally, he dares you now to show him off amid the trials that the world will bring because you name the name of Christ. You don't have to hide your Christianity. You do not have to hide your namesake. I am a Christian. I am a follower of Christ. He dares you to live for him and to be of good cheer and great courage as you do so. So take up the sword of the spirit and get court-martialed for showing it off. Shod your feet with the gospel of peace and run into the charges that will come. Receive the faith of Moses, who in the face of the superpower of the world in his day told the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And so the victory is all Christ, but in Christ, we are told in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It is a victory and an overcoming that we are are graced with the ability to enjoy and walk in this conquering faith in the world around us. So Jesus says, be of good cheer and take courage, dare, dare to live for Christ. Let's pray together. Father, if Jesus told us to take heart even though we fall short, then let us obey that and find our peace in his finished work rather than our imperfect works. And then if Jesus told us to take courage and to dare to trust him even when ridicule will come for taking a stand for him, then let us obey that as well and watch what you do as we name the name of Christ in the world today. And in doing so, draw us closer, for we ask it in Jesus' name, and amen.